You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole, St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. And grown-ups, we are going to race to the book of Revelation. So let's do that. Revelation chapter 10. And I have my friend here because as we study Revelation, if there's one more thing you need, it's just a strange creature, another strange creature. So we're going to put him right there. We'll come back to him later. Turn to Revelation chapter 10 with me. We're going to look this morning at several chapters, but we're going to start in chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one today. There are stacks of Bibles on the tables in the back of the room. You can grab one now. You can grab one on your way out after worship today. That's our gift to you with no strings attached. Just take it and start reading it and see what happens. And if you don't know your way around the Bible that well, that's okay. We've put all the verses that we're going to be studying in detail on the screen today so you can follow along with us. If you're willing and able, will you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? We do this because we really do believe that these are the words of God, so we stand out of reverence for Him, the God who's revealed Himself to us, and to show our readiness, our eagerness to listen to His Word today. So listen carefully. Revelation chapter 10, verses 8 to 11. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go. Take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Her name was Vibia. Vibia Perpetua. She was 22 years old. 22. She lived at the end of the second century, roughly a hundred years after John wrote the book of Revelation, the book we're studying. As Christianity came into conflict with imperial Rome, Christians were often imprisoned and they were frequently executed. These executions were a spectacle of Rome's power, you see. It was an appalling picture of what the emperor could do to anyone who refused to swear allegiance to him. Young Perpetua became a believer, a follower of the Lamb. She was arrested. She was imprisoned, along with several others, and eventually they were thrown to the beasts and the gladiators before a public audience. In the days leading up to her death, she recorded her reflections. She let us know what she was thinking. She tells us about some of the conversations she had with her family. She tells us about dreams that she had from the Lord. In this second century journal of sorts, here's what Perpetua writes. While I was still with the authorities, my father, out of love for me, tried to dissuade me from my resolution to follow Christ. Father, I said, do you see here, for example, this vase or or pitcher or whatever it is? I see it, he said. Can it be named anything else than what it really is? No, he said. 
So I also cannot be named anything else than what I am, a Christian. She continues, when we were imprisoned, I was terrified. I was terrified because never before had I experienced such darkness. What a terrible day. Because of the crowded conditions and rough treatment by the soldiers, the heat was unbearable. My condition was aggravated by my anxiety for my baby. Perpetua, you see, she had an infant at the time. Then Tertius and Pomponius, those kind deacons who were taking care of our needs, they paid for us to be moved for a few hours to a better part of the prison where we might refresh ourselves. I nursed my child, who was already weak from hunger. In my anxiety for the infant, I spoke to my mother about him. I tried to console my brother. I asked that they care for my son. I suffered intensely because I sensed their agony on my account. These were the trials I had to endure for many, many days. And then one day as we were eating, we were suddenly rushed off for a hearing. We went up to the prisoner's platform. All the others confessed. They confessed when they were questioned. When my turn came, my father appeared with my son. So this is the moment, you see, Perpetua can see into the eyes of her father, she can see into the eyes of her son, and this is the moment when she has to decide, will I choose my family, or will I continue to follow my Lord no matter what it might mean? When my father was there and appeared with my son, Hilarion, the governor, he asked me, are you a Christian? And I answered, I am a Christian. I am. And then the sentence was passed, and all of us were condemned to the beasts. The day before the battle in the arena, Perpetua had a dream. After telling us about that dream, she writes these words in her journal. I woke up realizing that I would be contending not with wild beasts, but with the devil himself. I knew, however, that I would win. Victory. Victory comes through the mystery of suffering. That is what we've been learning in the book of Revelation. I said to you last week, that we've come to that point in the book of Revelation where most readers stop reading and most preachers stop preaching because we've come to the point where the work of interpretation is much more demanding and the work of living out the interpretation is much more demanding. But we're not quitters here. We're pressing on. And we find ourselves today in chapters 8 to 11. That's right, we're going to tackle four chapters of the book of Revelation today. Because this is one long scene, and so we need to keep it together. But because there's so much happening in this scene, I think we need to make two passes today. So here's the plan. On the first pass, we're going to get the view from 30,000 feet. 
We're going to look at the whole scene, everything that's happening, and we're going to do our best to piece it together and figure out how it relates to the chapters that have led up to this point. Then we're going to fly over the passage a second time, and this time we're going to strap on our parachutes, we're going to parachute down, we're going to walk around in a couple of places in the text and see what we can learn there. And we're going to find on the ground of the text some truly earth-shaking implications for us today. So that's the plan. Now, four chapters of Revelation in one day, you're going to have to roll up the sleeves of your mind, okay? Roll them up, get that parachute strapped on, you got it ready? You with me? Here we go. We're going to start with the whole scene. Let's look at all of these chapters and how they relate to the previous ones. Remember what we've learned so far. Back in chapters 4 and 5, we saw John, the writer of Revelation. He's a political outcast, a rebel. He's exiled on the island of Patmos, and he receives a vision. The heavenly dimension opens before him, and he sees the throne room. He sees the control center of the universe. The throne of all thrones, and seated on that throne is the Lord God Almighty. And in his right hand is a scroll. And we know that that scroll represents the divine plan, the destiny of humanity and all creation. But there's a problem. The problem is that scroll is sealed. And no one can open it except for one. The lion lamb, Jesus Jesus is the only one who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll, thus revealing this secret message inside of it. And so that's what we saw in chapters 6 and 7. We saw Jesus breaking these seven seals one by one. As the first four seals were broken, we met the four riders, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. They represent various forms or shades of suffering that exist now. Remember the big idea here is that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is coming to earth. And we learned last week that it will come to earth through many tribulations, through various shades of suffering. So the first four seals as they're broken, we see shades of suffering that exist in the present that will characterize the entire church age leading all the way up until the time of Christ's return and the final judgment. Then, with the breaking of the fifth seal, we heard the cries of the fallen saints. Do you remember that scene from last week? Our fallen brothers and sisters under the altar crying out to God, praying, God, how long? How long before you will bring justice to the world? How long before you will rid the world of suffering and evil? And then with the, the sixth seal, we get a glimpse of that day of final judgment. It's a day when no one will be able to stand except God's true people. And then after the breaking of the sixth seal, this was important, we saw a parenthesis, chapter 7, where we are assured the church, God's true people, we are assured of His abiding presence with us during this time of tribulation in the present, when all of these shades of suffering are all around us, we can know that God is with us. So do we panic when we hear the hoofbeats of the four riders? No. No. Because we have this parenthetical part here in chapter 7 where God is saying, I'm with you. You're not alone. I have a good purpose in all of this. 
But we weren't only assured of God's abiding presence, we were also assured of his protection of us when the day of final judgment comes, the sixth seal. We will stand. Not because we're powerful. No, where are all of the powerful people of the earth on that day of final judgment? They're cowering in the caves. It's the people who humble themselves before the Almighty God who in faith and faithfulness follow the Lamb. We are the ones who will be spared on the final day. That was last week, the seals. But remember, there were seven seals, right? We only saw the first six being broken last week. What happened to the seventh one? Well, it doesn't show up until the beginning of chapter 8, the passage we're studying today. And with the breaking of the seventh seal, there's silence in heaven. Silence. We'll come back to that in a minute. But for now, I want you to see that it's the transition between these seven seals and the next series of seven, the seven trumpets, which we find in Revelation 8 to 11. Now, here's the most important thing I can tell you about the seven trumpets. They follow a similar pattern, and they cover the same time as the seven seals. So think of it like this. The trumpets follow the seals literarily, but not chronologically. The trumpets follow the seals literarily, not chronologically. They have a similar pattern, and they cover the same time period. The first six trumpets are showing us forms of judgment that exist in the present. So again, this is the church age. We're hearing these trumpets now, just as we hear the hoofbeats of the riders now. The final trumpet, the seventh one, gives us a glimpse of the final judgment, just like the sixth and seventh seals. So very similar pattern. And in between, we have another parenthesis. We have a message for God's people. The previous parenthetical comment was giving us a picture of God's presence and his protection. God is with us, and one day he will spare us from the final judgment. But one thing we didn't learn back in chapter 7 is what really is our purpose now then? If we have to live through all of this time of tribulation, what's the why behind it? What are we doing here? And that's what we learn in chapters 10 and 11. God's purpose for his people during the present tribulation. Now, the main difference between the seals and the trumpets is this. The seals focus primarily on the uprising of evil that the church must live through. Remember the image I gave you last week from C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's when Aslan, the great lion, is on the move. That's when the white witch assembles her army, an uprising of evil. That's what we see in the seals. The trumpets seem to place the emphasis on the outpouring of God's judgment on the unbelieving world. Those who have rejected the true king. Now, how do we know that? How do I draw that conclusion? Well, it begins with the image of the trumpet itself. In the Old Testament, a trumpet was the sound of victory. One of the most famous examples is the Battle of Jericho. In the book of Joshua, seven trumpets signal the falling of the city walls and the victory of God and his people. The other way that we know that these trumpets are primarily giving us a picture of God's judgment on the unbelieving world is because as you read this, and we don't have time to look at it verse by verse today, but as you read chapters 8 and 9, you'll see the similarities between these trumpets and the plagues in the book of Exodus. 
So you'll read about things like blood and darkness and locusts. Recalling the plagues of Exodus. What were the plagues of Exodus? God's judgment on the Egyptians for their rejection of him and their persecution of his true people. But Israel, God's people, they were spared. They were saved. And in fact, they were brought through the plagues to a place of rescue. So the picture we have here in the trumpets is the judgment of God, the outpouring of the judgment of God on the unbelieving world. And through these trumpets, follow me, through these trumpets, God's people will experience the ultimate exodus. Freedom from sin and suffering and all that plagues this earth to the new creation that God has in store for us. Now, as you study the trumpets, let me say this and then we got to move on. As you read about these trumpets later, we can categorize them into two major groups. The first four trumpets give us a picture of what I'm going to call the destruction of de-creation. These trumpets seem to affect creation itself, earth, water, air. It's de-creation, a purging, a purifying of the earth that has been polluted by sin. The latter trumpets are giving us a picture of a destruction of deception. Now, this is where you read about some really wacky stuff. And this is where people draw all sorts of crazy conclusions. There are people who think they see helicopters in these trumpets. Keep reminding yourselves of the genre of the book of Revelation. It's apocalyptic literature. It demands to be read symbolically. It's a first century letter. Keep telling yourself then, it can't mean for us what it didn't mean for them. Them being the readers of the first century. It can't mean for us what it didn't mean for them. There's no helicopters in there. Not what it's about. This is giving us a picture of spiritual deception. Evil angelic beings. Demonic forces being unleashed on the earth, deceiving the minds of unbelievers. Spiritual warfare. It's the same image as the image of the, of the white rider. Spiritual warfare occurring on the earth. But in all of this, remember the parenthesis, in all of this, the church has a purpose. We'll learn about that on our second passing. So there's the overview. You got all that? Clear as mud, right? You with me? Clear as mud. Now we're going to fly over the text again. We're going to parachute down, so get those shoots ready. And we're going to learn something about war, spiritual war. We're going to learn something about witness. Witness. Keep that word in mind. Something about war. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, this is back in chapter 8, the transition between the seals and the trumpets. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven. Silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose up before God from the hand of the angel. 
Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. I remember what I just said. This is the transition scene between the seals and the trumpets. The seventh seal, the breaking of the seventh seal, brings silence. This is the silence of listening. The way this is all set up in the book of Revelation, it's very clear that the judgment of God, the outpouring of His judgment, which is the trumpets, it comes in response to the prayers of God's people. Now, how do we know that? Well, look at what's happening here. There's silence in heaven, and then there's an altar. Silence in heaven, and an angel standing at the altar. Well, when was the last time we saw the altar? It was back in the fifth seal. Remember the cries of the fallen saints who are under the altar, protected by God? And what are they doing? They're praying. They're praying, God, how long? How long before your justice, your judgment will come? And so now we have this picture of the altar, an angel at the altar, and the prayers of the saints are being mixed with fire, symbolic of the power of God. So we have this picture of the prayers of the people ascending to the throne, being mixed with the power of God, and then being cast down to the earth. The power of heaven comes to the earth through the prayers of God's people. Now listen to me. When you're struggling in your prayer life, when you're doubting this spiritual discipline, when you're having those weeks where you just think you're too busy to pray, remember this image. Why do we have the book of Revelation? It's not to inform us, it's to inspire us. This image will inspire you to pray. The power, the power of heaven, it comes to the earth. That's what prayer is. Revelation is teeming with this language of spiritual warfare. We've read about it time and time again. And maybe as you've heard all that language, you've thought to yourself, war, you know, that's, that's something for the young men. I'm too old for that. Or maybe you thought, war, that's something for the grown-ups. I'm not ready for that. Every generation of the church must engage in this battle between good and evil. Every generation must stand. But here's what we learn at this point of the book. It's not really that we stand to fight, it's that we kneel. That's where the fighting is done. That's where the power comes. We kneel before the God who sits on the throne. And kneeling is something all of us can do. It's telling that our most powerful weapon in this war involves the least amount of physical strength. Our most powerful weapon involves the least amount of physical strength. So the elderly man, you can pray. The woman who can't get out of bed because of her cancer treatments, you can pray. The mom with the young child at home just consuming all of her time, you can pray. Anyone can pray, you can pray. So get in the war. The power of heaven comes to the earth 
through the prayers of God's people. We learn something here about this spiritual war that we are all in. Now, we learn more. We're going to come to the idea of witness in closing, but in the middle here, I want us to also see something about worship. This is the scene at the end of the six trumpets, the judgment of God in the present day, before we get a glimpse of the final judgment. So this is another transition scene. But look at what we read. These are some depressing words in chapter 9. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, the trumpets, they did not repent. They did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. What exactly is being judged in the trumpets? I've made the case that it's the outpouring of God's judgment, it's the outpouring of His wrath, but what exactly is He judging? It's very clear here in these verses. He's judging the worship practices of unbelievers. Now that sounds oxymoronic, doesn't it? The worship practices of unbelievers? Now here we need to get philosophical for just a moment. So make sure you still got those sleeves and your mind rolled up. We need to ask the question, what does it mean to be human? Most of us, despite the fact that we've probably never read the work of the French philosopher René Descartes, we share his understanding of what it means to be human. We tend to think that a human is a thinking thing. Thus my bobblehead friend here. We tend to picture humanity much like this. Brains on a stick. Giant heads with tiny, unimportant bodies. To be human is to be a thinking thing. But what if you're more than that? What if you're more than that? Long before Descartes, there was another philosopher named Augustine. And Augustine said this. He wrote a book called Confessions. It's his spiritual autobiography. He has a very famous statement in the book. And here's what it is. He says, God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Our hearts are restless until they rest in you. See, for Augustine, to be human is to be a thinking thing, yes, but it's more than that. For Augustine, to be human is to love. It's to have a heart. It is to love. In fact, we can't not love. And Augustine would say we can't not love something as ultimate. The heart is restless. It's chasing after whatever it is that we cherish the most. So to be human is to love, and it is to love something as ultimate. And here's what that means. That means that you and I and every other human, we are all worshipers. doesn't matter what you believe. You're a worshiper, and so am I. The question is not whether you will worship. It's who or what will you worship. God's judgment, these trumpets, are poured out on the unbelieving world because of their worship practices. See, when we understand that all people are worshipers, then and only then are we ready to understand what idolatry truly is in the Bible. We tend to think that we're safe from idolatry because we don't have little golden statues on the mantle at home. We're not bowing down before them. But in the Bible, an idol is anything we worship other than the Creator God. Here's the way Martin Luther, the great reformer, put it. Whatever your heart... Whatever your heart chases, 
whatever it confides in, that is your true God. That is your idol. See, an idol can be anything. And often, an idol is a good thing. This is the problem with idolatry. It blurs the line between the creator God and created things. Idolatry rejects the creator and reveres the creation. So oftentimes in our lives, idols are good things that we have made ultimate things. Your idol could be sports. It could be pleasure. It could be work or wealth or your family. But what this passage in Revelation is teaching us is that idolatrous worship always, always leads to destructive behavior. See, if you cherish and you chase money, if that's your idol, then you'll steal. You'll kill others. Why wouldn't you? If you cherish and chase pleasure, then you will commodify and consume other people. Idolatrous worship always leads to destructive behavior. If you reject the loving and life-giving God, it will always lead you down a path of destruction. God's judgment is coming in these trumpets on the unbelieving world. Why? What exactly is being judged? Idolatry. The rejection of the loving and life-giving path of God himself. We're all worshipers. Humans are much more than thinking things. We're worshiping things. So there's something to learn here about worship. Now, finally, there's something to learn about witness. Chapter 10. After the six trumpets, before the final trumpet, before the final judgment, we had the parenthesis, remember? The message for the church. We've already seen in chapter 7 a parenthetical message reminding us of God's presence, His protection of us when the day of the final judgment, judgment comes. But why are we here now, God? What's our purpose? And that's what this parenthesis is all about. And it begins with this angel, a mighty angel coming down from heaven, and he, hands, he has in his hand a scroll, and the scroll is open. Probably this is the scroll from chapter 5. The scroll that we saw five chapters ago, I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. That's God, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel. So here's the mighty angel again or another one. And the, the next reference to the scroll. So in other words, this is what we've been waiting for. Remember the scroll and what it represents? God's plan for the whole world? How is it that God's kingdom will come to the earth? We don't know yet. We've seen the breaking of the seals, but we haven't seen the contents of the scroll. I want to know what's in that scroll, don't you? Well, here it is. It's the moment we've been waiting for. But we don't read the scroll just yet because John is told to eat it. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea and on the land. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And then I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. What is this all about? Here's the scroll. It's open. Finally, the seals are broken. The secret of all of history before us. Rather than reading it, John is told to eat it. Why? Symbolic, of course. Symbolic of his complete absorption of the message. He takes it all in before 
he gives it out. You see? The contents of the scroll are given then in summary form in chapter 11, verses 1 to 13. That's the moment we've been waiting for. The contents of the scroll, here it is, and it's a parable. I'm going to summarize it for you. It's a parable about the church. In this parable, we read about two anonymous witnesses. How do we know that these two witnesses are the church? Because they're also referred to as the two lampstands, which is the way the church is referred to back in chapters 1 to 3. Why then are there two witnesses? Maybe because in the Old Testament, two witnesses were necessary for something to be heard. But more than likely, I think it's because if you recall the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3, how many of them got the green light? How many of them received pure affirmation from Jesus? Only two. Only two of the seven churches were faithful to their calling. So this is a parable then of the faithful church and the purpose of the faithful church during this time of great tribulation. The purpose, very clearly, is to bear witness to the Lamb. We are called the two witnesses. We are defined by the witness that we bear to the Lamb Himself. And how do we bear this witness? What does it look like? The witnesses are clothed in sackcloth. In the Old Testament, sackcloth is the sign of repentance. The church is not perfect, but we are penitent. We live lives of reflection, reflecting on the gospel, and repentance. Turning away from idolatry. Turning to the Lamb, following Him in an ongoing fashion. Then and only then are we ready to take this good news to the world. So what is the result? When the church, when we bear witness like this, what is the result? Well, it's not what you might be expecting. This is where the parable takes a twist. The two witnesses, they die. They die. And not only that, but there's a huge party in the streets of the city. People gather around their rotting corpses and they celebrate the death of the witnesses. It's a dangerous thing to speak the truth, the truth about the Lamb. But death is not the end for the witnesses. They're resurrected. And this rejection of the truth is not the only response in the city. Many, many others are spared from the judgment on the final day. Many, many others follow the Lamb. So here's what you've got to see. The trumpets, the first six. Remember in chapter 9 what we read after the coming of the first six judgments, the people don't repent. The picture we have there is a picture of incompleteness. The judgment of God alone poured out on the world, it doesn't bring repentance. The people continue in their idolatrous worship. Something is missing. What's missing? The witness of the church. It's the judgment of God poured out on the world combined with the sacrificial witness of the church. That's what leads to the salvation of the world. See, church, this is what we're here for. Don't be confused. Don't be distracted. It really is quite simple. We are here to bear witness to the Lamb, to make whatever sacrifice is required of us in order to bear witness 
to the Lamb. That is how the world changes. That's how people are saved. So faith church, remember that. We are here to bear witness. And to my unbelieving friends, my skeptical, cynical friends out there, let me say this to you. Heed the lesson of the last year plus. If the pandemic has taught us anything, surely it has taught us that we are not in control. We are not in control. But really, we never have been. It's hard to believe it's been 20 years since 9-11. It doesn't seem like it, does it? Every one of us that lived through that day, we can remember exactly where we were. Ironically, I was sitting at Sanford University in a speech class, and we were all speechless. You remember exactly where you were, don't you? 9-11 was a terrible, terror-filled day. But you know what else it was? It was a Tuesday. Just a normal, mundane Tuesday at first. Probably none of those people woke up thinking it was going to be their final day. We are not in control. Now listen, I'm not trying to frighten you. I'm just helping you focus on what you already know to be true. This world is full of sin and suffering and destruction and death. And I'm bearing witness to the Lamb. I'm sharing with you the hope of resurrection. Death doesn't have to be the end of your story. You can be forgiven. You can find hope and purpose and a thousand other things you've been looking for. Remember what Augustine said? God, you have made us for yourself and our heart, it will be restless until it rests in you. Ask yourself, what have you been chasing? What have you been cherishing? You're a worshiper just like me. The thing, the person, whatever it is, the object that you've been chasing, has it brought satisfaction to your life? Has it brought meaning and purpose? The lamb can. I'm bearing witness. I'm asking you to consider, and I pray, believe, in the Lamb, in the Lord Jesus Christ. He will bring to you everything your heart has been missing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this message in chapters 8 to 11, a message that we all need to hear. We understand that God, your kingdom, it is indeed coming to this earth, but perhaps not in the way that we previously expected. Your kingdom is coming through many tribulations. Your kingdom is coming through the outpouring of your judgment, judgment that is present in part now and in full on the final day. Your kingdom is coming through the sacrificial witness of your church. This is how people repent. This is how people respond positively to you, God, to the message of the gospel. It requires us calling to repentance. It requires us making sacrifices all in order to get the good news out to the world. 
We get so distracted by so many other things. I know I do. Forgive us for that, Lord. Your mission is clear. Your calling is clear. We complicate it at times just because we don't want to do what you've called us to do. Forgive us. It's just our selfishness when that happens. You call us to sacrifice. Because that's what we see in Jesus, the Lamb. God, I pray for any unbelievers, skeptical, cynical people who might be here in the worship center today or joining us online. They've been searching for something. And they will continue searching until they find you, Lord Jesus. So I pray that right now you're working in their hearts, giving them the gift of spiritual life, giving them the gift of faith. And that in faith and faithfulness, they will indeed follow the Lamb. Work in hearts today, Lord. Transform. We ask this in Jesus' name.